0: or so who uh, wrote really one of the finest covenant theologies we have. It was in print in 1990 through the Dundalk Foundation uh, distributed by PNR but it's now out of print and I talked to Bob Dundalk about this and complained bitterly about it being out of print and he said they may want to put a new cover on it or something but I'm really hoping they bring it back because it's a very fine edifying book But he says this about the essential difference of the covenant of works and the covenant of grace. In the covenant of works, there was no mediator. In that of grace, there is the mediator, Christ Jesus. In the covenant of works, the condition of perfect obedience was required to be performed by man himself who had consented to it. In that of grace, the same condition is proposed as to be or as already performed by a mediator. Substitution. And in this substitution of the person consists the principal and essential difference of the covenants. This is what I've been saying and I frankly which has influenced me and helped me a lot in covenant theology and I just thought that uh, put it so well that personal obedience is what the covenant of works is really all about and that term works, covenant of works may make it seem like Well, there's working going on and not any in the gracious covenant. But you see, in the covenant of grace, as we will see, there is works. It is founded on perfect, personal, and perpetual obedience in the covenant of grace. But it's the perfect, personal, and perpetual obedience of the mediator on our behalf. So really, you could even talk about one covenant with God. The covenant of grace fulfills the covenant of works he, as the second Adam. Alan and I were talking about that earlier. This is where the second Adam theology comes through. Adam, The second Adam fulfilled the broken covenant of the first Adam by working and fulfilling the task of his father, completely obeying him without sin, and that is given to us so that in him we become the righteousness of God in him. Alan. Yes. It, it at least gives you the idea that if there was a faltering in the perpetual obedience, then there could be elimination of standing or something. So can you explain what you mean by perpetual? Because the the work of Christ has been fully completed has no ongoing uh efficacious element to it. I like, that's probably the wrong word No, I understand what you're saying. Is how is the obedience of Christ perpetual well he is perpetually obeying still isn't he perfectly always will for eternity as man because Christ in his incarnation permanently assumed manhood the son of God assumed manhood permanently Uh, and yet it was an earthly life under that covenant that was required to all of his days to the end of his life And that is what is given to us. A complete, perfect human obedience all of his earthly life. That was adequate to enter into the fullness of the past probationary period, the fullness of life eternal, confirmed in righteousness. We cannot sin anymore. So that's how we understand it. The the word perpetual there just points out that it wasn't a temporary kind of obedience required for a set limit as a creature, Adam had to obey all of his days. He couldn't... It wasn't just lapsing in and out of obedience. And that's all they're trying to communicate there. And perhaps I am bringing that word perpetual in for Christ's obedience in a confusing way, and I don't, I don't mean to do that, but, but pointing out that his obedience really was constant. One thing about the Gospels you, you pick up when you're attuned to this, that he's fulfilling the, Abraham, the Adamic Covenant, is the Gospel writers often portray that in so many words. For example, the temptations are cast in terms of the temptations of Adam in the garden, and that he fulfilled the same temptation issues, and he, he passed that, that test. Uh, and the Gospel writers were saying that Christ's obedience is throughout his life, not just at the cross. And this is, of course, the act of obedience of Christ that we are so... Uh, rightly uh, enamored with because of Machen's uh, and Murray's insight on it. Murray really helped us to see that so well. He, John Murray wrote on that uh, very explicitly, the act of obedience to Christ, which we'll talk about. So I read your quote. Now we're going to look at the scripture. Oh, I want to just clarify one more thing. Uh, Caroline Poundstone asked about Genesis twelve one through three, whether that was part of the Abrahamic covenant or not, because it came. Bef- it was promises given to Abraham before the covenant in Genesis fifteen was actually made, and I'm not sure I answered exactly to the point. But th- the answer is yes, yes. There you go. Uh, Genesis. The promises in Genesis twelve are included in the covenant making in chapter fifteen. By implication because in chapter 12 the promises center around the seed of Abraham and it's through his seed that all the families of the world will be blessed and in chapter 15 the seed is the issue there as well and the part of the promise but I think you have to see that when that covenant making formally is made in chapter 15 God is really saying all that I've promised you Abraham I will fulfill and it's embodied in the seed promise, but it includes the land promise and, and all the other elements, the blessing to the nation. So I, I think absolutely yes. And let me, let me just point out also, and this may be a good place to do this, I may, I'll probably forget when I, later, so I'll tell you this now, another miscellaneous point, but, but one that I think might be of interest. Remember what Jesus does with the co- covenant formula. The Sadducees say, well, the Old Testament, and the Sadducees only accepted the five books of Moses as the Old Testament. They rejected all the rest of Scripture as scriptural. So the Sadducees said, well, the Scripture doesn't teach resurrection. And Jesus, encountering them, says, haven't you read that that God says to Moses, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. God is not the God of the dead, therefore... He's the God of the living who are resurrected. So Jesus draws the doctrine of the resurrection out of the covenant formula, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He says, by good and necessary inference, you know where I'm getting that term is from our confession, and they're absolutely right on that. It's a wonderful principle of interpretation and fully biblical by good and necessary inference Jesus says if God claims you as your God and he's only the God of the living resurrection is implied there though he dies yet he will live because God is not the God of the li- of the dead He in other words what Jesus is actually arguing is when God appears to Moses Abraham has died and yet God says I'm still the God of Abraham He's still alive for me to be in relation with. That's part of the argument Jesus is making implicitly. But so that, so that when Abraham hears as the essence of the covenant being drawn up, and in chapter 17 of Genesis, when the circumcision is given, it's even more explicitly stated that this really is what the covenant is all about. I will be your God and the God of your seed after you you can assume an, imp- an implication of that that Abraham is also being promised eternal life in resurrected existence because God says I will be your God I'm not the God of the dead so you could even say and again this is the covenant of grace in operation, the real heart of the covenant of grace is life that Abraham is being promised eternal life in that covenant making in Genesis 15 and 17 by implication But you see, some of these implications are drawn out later. I mean, the the exact ramifications and the glory of it all. Really, God uh, hints at it, shows it in types and shadows so that the people of God can be encouraged and their faith nourished. Yet in the Old Covenant, it was in a shadowy form and it waited our day to be fully revealed just how extensive and massive and wonderful God's promises really are. so that's just a, a point to make. You can see the continuity again as well as the differences in the eras. Well, let's turn again, please, to Genesis excuse me, uh, Galatians chapter three. <clears throat> because while you were in a break, God appeared to Moses on Mount Sinai and gave the law covenant. (laughs) So now we have to explain it. It was a very quick transaction. But now we're dealing with the Mosaic covenant. So we want to explain it. And believing in the unity of Scripture we can look at the New Testament to interpret the Old. Isn't that a wonderful freedom? Believing in one author of Scripture, ultimately, God himself, we can see the unity of his revelation. So in, Gen- in Galatians 3.6, Abraham's faith and justification in, in 3.6 is stated, even so, Abraham believed God and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. Justification by faith. Therefore, be sure that it is those who are of faith who are sons of Abraham. The scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, All the nations will be blessed in you. And as I mentioned, this this promise is also reiterated to Isaac later on in Genesis, I believe 25, but I don't remember the exact chapter but it is reiterated to Isaac as well as Abraham. So then, those who are of faith are blessed with Abraham the believer. Now verse 10. For as many as are of the works of the law are under a curse. Now notice where this curse is derived. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law to perform them. It is derived from the Mosaic Covenant Code. Deuteronomy 27 so the curse is derived from the Mosaic law upon all those who will not believe and instead substitute their own works of law as a basis for justification before God and attaining eternal life those are the issues before us life and justification is it by law keeping this phrase, works of law, I think can best be translated law-keeping. It's my own, through my own working with that text for quite some time. Through law-keeping, they are under a curse because cursed is everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law to perform them, to complete them. Now there is an unstated assumption. No one can do it. No one can keep the law perfectly. So that we can say that since the fall, although no man since the fall can attain to righteousness and life by the moral law going on. That's the larger catechism, question 94. No one since the fall can attain to eternal life through the moral law, law law-keeping. Now verse 11. Now that no one is justified by the law before God is evident, for the righteous man shall live by faith. Where does that come from? Verse 11, that statement, the righteous man shall live by faith. And of course, by implication, it means exclusively. The righteous man, the one who will be justified, will live by faith only, not by any other way. That's how Paul means this. Well, it's from Habakkuk. However, the law is not of faith. On the contrary, quote, he who practices them shall live by them. It actually should be stated, he who fulfills them will live by them. He who completes all the terms of the law stated, then he will live by them. Only if he fulfills all the terms. Where does that derive from? Well, Leviticus 18, talking about the Mosaic law. Joe. so so what's being stated is by implication if someone could complete all the terms of the law then they would come to life the answer is hypothetically yes but not after Adam and that's Romans 5 in Adam all die already under a curse and condemnation in Adam so you'd have to not be a son of Adam or a daughter of Adam to even fall into a situation where you could start fulfilling that situation. You'd really be under your own covenant of works. Is the covenant of works possibly still there? Only for someone who can... Start out not being a son of Adam. <laughs> in po- yeah, in, it's real rough. We've got to look for that extraterrestrial uh, origin. Now that's see that's the that's the importance of understanding Romans five in light of this question. Is yes, hypothetically, someone could today be under a covenant of works if they could be born under some other arrangement besides under Adam. And in Adam, all of his children are cursed. So we can't even start to fulfill the covenant of works. But you see, it is simply this principle we're looking at, and this is what I'm getting to, this principle is a covenant of works principle, isn't it? That by personal law-keeping, you will attain life if you can complete all the terms and conditions of this law. Now, brothers and sisters, if you're, if you're wiggling in your chair and saying, ooh, what's he saying? You know, I'm going to make some very careful distinctions, very briefly, but I'm going to try to make them very, very carefully so that you, know, you understand exactly what I'm saying. Because I'm probably, I'm probably not going to say what you think I'm going to say, so... You have to hear the whole presentation. All right. But I'm showing you that to read the Apostle Paul, he is drawing these principles out of the law of Moses. The Mosaic covenant embodies this principle. These curses are not coming out of the rabbis, they're not coming out of the Greek laws or the uh, laws of the Romans. These are coming straight out of the Old Testament. Specifically, those laws connected to the Mosaic Covenant. But I'm going to make some very careful distinctions. And let me say it first. The Mosaic Covenant is an administration of the covenant of grace. So, but we've got to account for this, don't we? Okay, moving on. So, faith alone is the principle of life. Notice, you know, I've been hitting this over and over. Faith alone marks the covenant of grace, not law-keeping, personal obedience. And yet, you have this personal obedience. Why? Part of the answer is as he goes forward. Verse 12 says, However, the law is not of faith. On the contrary, he who practices them shall live by them. Verse 13 now. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law. We were under the law's curse. The law of curse. How were we delivered? Was it by our law keeping? No. On the contrary, excuse me, having become a excuse me, sorry, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written again, notice the source cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. The source is Deuteronomy twenty one. Again, the Mosaic Law Code. Carrying with it a curse upon lawbreakers. And that curse of the law fell on another on our behalf. He delivered us by becoming a curse on our behalf. There is substitution. So the law brings a curse upon Christ as well as us. In order that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we would receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. Notice what blessing is coming. The Abrahamic blessing. Notice the continuity of the Abrahamic covenant here. It's the Abrahamic blessing that's coming to us. The one that pre-preached to Abraham, given now to us in fulfillment through Christ Jesus. Now verse 15 through 20, we already went through. I won't go through it again there you can see that Christ is the focus of the promises to Abraham and then in verse 20 as we saw previously I know it's pretty difficult to grasp at first but but you see that ultimately Paul locates this whole counsel of God in God himself for God is one and no one can change this fixed decree of God because it is the covenant of redemption no other principle can inter. To interpose to change the terms of this inheritance. That's what I was saying previously. So that no law keeping principle can intervene to destroy the principle of inheritance by grace through faith, through the promise. That's what we're doing with chapter twenty. Because it's located within God Himself, Father and Son, compacting, as well as Holy Spirit, compacting covenant of redemption to bring this to pass. And if that's true, the question naturally arises, why then the law, right? If the law can't, is brought in after the Abrahamic covenant is brought in, if the law is added, that's the term in verse 19, the law is added to the Abrahamic foundation, a law is added to it, what's the purpose? What purpose would that serve if it doesn't change the terms of inheritance to law-keeping now? What is the purpose? And that's exactly what... See, part of reading Paul is asking questions. And usually he's answering those questions that come to your mind. I think this is a real trick to reading Paul. Start asking questions. Well, if that's true, what about... And he usually is is thinking along the same lines and that's the kinds of things he's answering. And that is what he's answering. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Why did it come in? Is it, you know, is it some interloper? May it never be. Never, in, It's not possible, he says. May it never be. For if a law could be given, which was able to impart life, then righteousness would indeed have been based on law. This answers uh, Joe's question earlier. See, law-keeping... Can't, as a principle, impart life. All it can do is say, do this and you will live. If you don't do this entirely, exactly, personally, perpetually, perfectly, you are under a curse. That's all the law can do, is impart a curse for law-breaking. It does not have within it a provision for mercy as a pure law covenant principle. And so he says, that when the law came in, it wasn't for that purpose of, important, of imparting life. That can't be its purpose, Paul says. Now verse 22. But the scripture has shut up everyone under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. In other words, the law hems us in. And you go to Romans 3 now, remember, God's purpose is that both Jew and Gentile would be indictable to God. This is Romans 3 I think 19 18 or 19 So that the law hems us in and says you've got to you can't do anything yourself to merit eternal life. Nothing you do personally can bring you eternal life. Not even the best things are adequate so it shuts you up it puts you in a prison and it says to you there's only one way out that door can't be opened any way except by faith in another in Jesus Christ and that's exactly what Paul says in verse 22 the scripture has shut everyone up under sin driving us to Christ as a whipping you know, it's sort of a whip in a sense a merciful whip 23, but before oh I'm sorry I can't read that alright let's read the uh, text verse 22 but the scripture shut up everything under sin in order that the promise from faith in Jesus Christ might be granted to those who believe now you have to see that he says a specific kind of faith. It's it's the scripture in the era of law shutting everyone up under sin, moving to the faith in Jesus Christ when he appears. So it's not faith in general, but it's a specific kind of faith. Faith in a revealed Christ. And this is how you understand verse twenty three. For before that faith came, we were shut up under law, under lock and key, until that faith would be revealed, which was destined to be revealed. I've paraphrased wildly there, but that's what how Paul brings that out. Now let me explain that in verse 23. You see, he says... It, it sounds like immediate when you're reading your translations that there was no faith before Christ came. And that's a betrayal of what he says about believing Abraham, isn't it? Abraham believed. It was you know, He's the father of believers. Now, he doesn't mean that. He means specifically this faith in Christ, a revealed Christ. That's what he says. And he says that in the original language in a way that you can pick it up. I'm, I'm not making this up. I make up a lot of stuff, but I'll tell you when I make up stuff, okay? <laughs> For this time, I'm telling you the honest truth. The other times I tell you the dishonest truth, right? No, he, he, he says it in a way, when, the, when you follow the flow of the text, he says it in a way that indicates that. When this faith is revealed, and tell this faith, particularly in a revealed Christ. So you see, the faith was dependent upon... The revelation of God in, in particular eras, in this case, but until this faith was revealed, we were kept under lock and key, under a um, guardian, probably the best way, a Pythagogos. A Pythagogos or a guardian was a uh, slave in a big, either Greek or Roman family. Both, of them, both uh, cultures used this. They would hire us hire. They would buy a slave. They would buy a slave for their household. Remember, almost every family had one slave or more. One-third of the population of Pauline Ephesus were slaves. One-third were not free. They were slaves. So in a big family, the master, the owner, the father, would buy a slave to take his son to school and make sure he wasn't molested or didn't get into other kind of trouble. And he would stay in some part of the school and basically just keep an eye on him. He, he would take a club, usually, to fend off attackers as well as to uh, make sure the boy kept in line. So, Well, he, he would. I mean, the boys were always out dicing and fooling around. But remember, these are children who grow up with nannies, Their parents are very aloof, or out partying all the time. You know, family life wasn't so wonderful all the time. Um, So this is what the law functions as: a guardian to keep an eye on us. So the law is our guardian until Christ. You know, moving us to Christ in order that we might be justified from faith. Now, when the faith has come, we're no longer under this guardian. It doesn't have the same role for us. For you are all sons of God through faith in Jesus Christ, even you Gentiles. For as many as you who could have been baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There's no longer Jew or Greek, no longer slave or free, no longer male or female. You are all one in Christ Jesus for if you belong to Christ, then you, Jew, Gentile, slave, free, male, female, are seed of Christ. me, seed of Abraham, heirs according to promise. And just in passing, verse 28. All those groups, Gentiles, are absent from the inheritance of Israel. Ephesians 2. They they're cut off from the commonwealth of Israel and not heirs of the promise as Gentiles, Greeks. Slaves in both Greek and Roman society could not inherit. In fact, in Roman law, a slave could not be freed by a will. So if a master died and intended to free a slave and he put it in his will, it would be null and void. He had to free him before he died. And he couldn't inherit because a slave was not a legal person in Greek and Roman law. They didn't exist by law. They had no rights whatsoever except through their owner. Now, there were, there were some changes as time went on, but at the time Paul is writing this, he's saying he, everybody knew slaves were non-persons. In fact, the common Greek word for slave was soma, body. It's even found in Revelation 18. They were just talking tools, you see, they weren't legally persons they had no inheritance rights likewise females could not inherit except by by certain uh, roundabout fashions in both greek and roman world usually they only inherited through their sons or other guardians they had a guardian called a kurios, a lord it's the same word for lord in the new testament so uh, a woman had a, had a legal guardian who represented her in law and if she had an inheritance from her father, it, wouldn't, it couldn't be directly given to her. It had to be given to her children or her male guardian, whoever it was, and he would administer the money for her. And that's the issue in verse 28. Who inherits this Abrahamic promise? Who are the heirs according to promise? Well, all those groups that are cut off from inheritance in society in Paul's day are fully brought in as full heirs of this gospel promise. Equal access to life. Isn't that wonderful? There's no distinction anymore. All those societal distinctions are erased and thrown out. Good stuff. So, what do we do with this law? It sounds awfully works ish, doesn't it? Worklika it sounds sort of like a works covenant I already said it's a covenant of grace and yet it's a principle of the man who does these things personally will live in them that's drawn out of the Mosaic covenant well what does Paul say in 2 Corinthians 3.6 i Twenty two to turn there now 2 Corinthians 3.6 Paul is comparing himself with Moses. He says he's not adequate in himself to be a minister of the gospel, but his adequacy comes from God. Verse 6. Who also made us adequate as servants of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. But if the ministry of death in letters engraved on stones came with glory so that the sons of Israel could not look intently at the face of Moses because of the glory of his face, fading as it was, how will the ministry of the Spirit fail to be even more with glory? For if the ministry of condemnation has glory, much more does the ministry of righteousness abound in glory. For indeed, what had glory in this case has no glory because of the glory that surpasses it. For if that which fades away was with glory, how much more that which remains is in glory. So he has just described the new covenant as a ministry of the Spirit, which gives life abounding righteousness and greater glory. But he's also just described the Mosaic covenant. And you can't, you can't avoid this. I mean, verse 7, the ministry of death in letters engraved on stones. So those are the stone tablets. And the sons of Israel, and Moses. It is a ministry of the letter, and the letter kills. It is a ministry serving condemnation, verse 9, and its glory is surpassed and no longer shining. A ministry of condemnation. What is God doing bringing condemnation in in this Mosaic covenant? Is he now taking us all the way back to the garden before the fall and saying, works. A man must complete all the things written in the book of this law to live. That's the question before. us. Romans verse 8. It would be especially cool if that were true, wouldn't it? If that's all we're faced with in the Mosaic Covenant. Romans 8, verses 2 through 4. Paul, of course, is talking about the gospel. It's about all he ever talks about. Gospel, gospel, gospel. Good news, good news, good news. Happy, happy, happy. That's why we love him. Let's start with verse 1. Therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Now, this has got a lot of a new covenant in it, and you already picked up on that, didn't you? That the law is fulfilled in us, but how? By faith in another who fulfilled its terms. This is what, exactly what Paul says in Romans 10. Just flip right over there. Romans 10, we'll start with verse 1, give you some context. Brethren, my heart's desire and my prayer to God for them is for their salvation. For I testify about them that they have a zeal for God, but not not according to knowledge. For not knowing about God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own, they did not subject themselves to the righteousness of God. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. For Moses writes that the man who practices the righteousness which is based on law shall live by that righteousness. The man who does these things will live by them. But the righteousness based on faith speaks as follows. Do not say in your heart, etc. And it focuses on Christ. So, a question. Is the Mosaic Covenant a covenant of works? That's the question before us. Time for lunch. (laughs) Just kidding. We have 15 minutes to answer one of the naughtiest problems in covenant theology. Now, before we get into that, I'd like to make some preliminary points. That's the question we're going to answer, though. Because everything we've read suggests that the Mosaic Law is law. Oddly enough. And the law, righteousness, says the man who does these things personally will live by them. Personal, perfect obedience. Live by that. But before we get to that, we need to talk more generally about the Mosaic Covenant. First of all, the Mosaic Covenant is founded squarely upon the Abrahamic Covenant. The Exodus itself is an act of God's covenant commitment to Israel in response and remembrance of his covenant to Abraham. Exodus 323 23-25, reading, In the course of those many days the king of Egypt died, and the people of Israel groaned under their bondage and cried out for help. And their cry under bondage came up to God, and God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. And God saw the people of Israel and God knew their condition, etc. What proceeds is God sent the Redeemer because of his remembering and acting on, remember just means really to act upon his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And then that great formula of the Abrahamic covenant, I will be your God and you will be my people, is taken up and reiterated as part of the stuff and substance of the Mosaic Covenant. We read in Exodus 6-7, And I will take you for my people, and I will be your God, and you shall know that I am the Lord your God who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. Think also about how in the Ten Commandments themselves, I read one author who said, There's no evidence of the covenant of grace in the ten commandments and I beg to differ but it's in the statement I am the Lord your God you shall see I am the Lord your God this is why you shall obey me and that Lord your God that just phrase your God is evidence of the same commitment of God and mutual possession which is part of a continuation of the covenant of grace that is the heart of the covenant of grace. That God will provide the substitute to make that real, to make that a reality that, you, that I will be your God forever and I will judicially guarantee that you will live forever based on some foreign righteousness that I will provide God's own righteousness appearing. Thirdly, a character of the continuity of the Abrahamic covenant seen in the Mosaic covenant. And this is just a phrase in Hebrews 7, and I'm hoping to get further into Hebrews 7 because it's dealing with the same issue. We really have to read Hebrews 7 through 9, but that's a bit much. So I'm just going to read now Hebrews 7, uh, verse 11. The author of Hebrews is comparing Christ's priestly office with the priestly office under the Mosaic covenant of Levi and particularly of Aaron as high priest because the real focus in Hebrews is on the high priesthood and the day of atonement. That's really the issue that he's addressing. And he says in verse 11, describing the Mosaic covenant and the establishment of the Levitical priesthood, he says this, Now if perfection was through the Levitical priesthood For on the basis of it, the people received the law. What further need was there for another priest according to the order of Melchizedek, etc.? But I just want to focus on that little parenthetical statement because he says uh, so much in that statement. Notice what he says. The people of God received the law because of the Levitical priesthood. The law was given based on the Levitical priesthood. That's what he said. Now what does that mean? What is there about a priesthood that makes that true? That God, that God gave the Mosaic law based on the Levitical priesthood. What does a priest do? He makes... He intercedes and in specifically thinking about Aaron now, he performs sacrifices which do what? Atone. And what's the result of atonement? What's the effect of it? It cleanses and brings us into God's presence. To bring us near to God. Those are all the things that Hebrews is talking about. If you look at this, draw near to God, draw near to the throne of grace to find help in time of trouble, a priest, Intercedes. no man takes it upon himself but a priest is from the people so that he might compassionately intercede for the people but you see the great heart of the Mosaic Covenant is what? the Levitical priesthood why? because the whole Mosaic Covenant administering grace is bringing the people of God to God I will be your God and you will be in my presence as my people so you can say The law is based on the priesthood because the priesthood is a specific administration, covenant administration, which brings the people close to God, which is the whole point of having the law, is to bring the people to God. Not law-keeping, but priesthood, atonement, grace, sacrifice, Somebody else dies for the people's sins. In this case, a bull and a goat. Can that remove sin? No. So the Mosaic Law and the covenant of Moses is not the final fulfillment, is it? This is what the people of God are learning at the time of the Mosaic Covenant and afterward. That that it, it sure seems like a fulfillment. Is it the final fulfillment? No. What does the sacrifice do? Hebrews says, The sacrifices have to be perpetual. Why? Because it can take away sins? No, because it brings annual reminder of sins. Sacrifices repeated brings repeated reminder of sins so that you would continually be driven back to hope for some other final sacrifice once for all by a priest whose priesthood would be eternal because our priests die. So the Mosaic Law is founded on the basis of the Levitical priesthood and that makes it an administration of the Covenant of Grace and specifically an institution founded on the Abrahamic Covenant. Why? Why do I say that? What's the connection between Abraham and Levi? I mean, there's an obvious one. Levi is Abraham's descendant. But what else in the in the context of Hebrews seven that you know about? Remember what happened. What the what the writer argues about the uh, the different priesthoods there of Melchizedek and Levi in the loins of Abraham. Well, let me ask you this: Was Abraham a priest? What's the evidence of that? He, he, he built altars and he, he performed sacrifices, one of which, thankfully, was aborted by God, of Isaac. But that was a sacrifice, an action by a priest. What else did he do? Remember with Abimelech. Abimelech took Sarah and God tells Abimelech, Go ask Abraham, my servant, my priest, to intercede for you. So Abraham interceded for Abimelech and prayed for him and then God healed his family. So you see, Levi's priesthood is a continuation and an administration of Abraham's priesthood for the nation. So there's a movement in covenant history now from the patriarchal age of one big individual family to an administration of the same priesthood to a whole nation so that one of the sons' line would become the priestly clan. No longer the head of the family would be the priest, the patron, you know, the the patriarch. So the the Mosaic Covenant, as a new administration of the Abrahamic priesthood, is, is nationalizing it and by taking up the Levitical priesthood. But our author, in Hebrews 7, says, it's the same kind of priesthood, or really the same priesthood. It's Abraham's priesthood because Levi was in the loins of his father when his father gave the tithe to Melchizedek. Thereby, the same priesthood is involved. And Melchizedek's priesthood is greater and Christ is in the order of Melchizedek. You can see how you have to argue theologically somewhat, right? You have to look at a number of scriptures and bring them together to understand these points. But this is warranted. This is the only way to do theology. It's also, by the way, based on scripture. So we're following scriptural warrant. So there are other elements of continuation of the Abrahamic covenant in the Mosaic. There's the reception of the land promised to Abraham, and the people enter into the land, and Joshua leads them into the rest, doesn't he? Throughout the book of Joshua, and he gave them rest from their enemies all around. He rested them. He sabotaged them. Of course, author of Hebrews chapter 4 has something to say about whether that was final or not. But they were uh, entering into at least a partial fulfillment of that promise. Finally, we see that Israel as the church would never be annihilated. Leviticus 26 again. I may send you out among the nations, but you will never disappear from the face of the earth because I will remember my covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I will continue to remember that because that covenant is still in force. That's the point of that. So, the Mosaic Covenant is an administration of the covenant of grace founded squarely on the Abrahamic Covenant, continuing it and serving its purposes. But what do we do with this works element? You've got to tune in tonight. I hope we're all awake enough to do this. This is probably the heaviest, uh, just in passing and, and at the end here, I'm going to conclude with this. This is probably the heaviest aspect of covenant theology is untangling the distinction between the works element and the Mosaic law and covenant and the gracious element. And there's been a lot of Uh, dispute and misunderstanding among us on this, Uh, I will be presenting my opinion as a tentative conclusion, uh, but one where I certainly don't have all the answers. I'll read you some of our great divines on this. But the point is, you have to account for all the scriptures on these issues, and understand these issues very, very carefully. But I want to make sure you understand that the Mosaic Covenant was advancing the grace of God in Christ Jesus and not in any way substituting works righteousness for eternal life. It was not doing that in any way. And none of our theologians say that, thankfully. So the, the disagreements are on some of the particulars and some of the terms used to describe things and and such, But I, I think they can be easily described, at least in general. So that's what I attempt to do. Let's uh, close our time together in prayer. Almighty Father, we thank you that you have given us this revelation of yours which is so intricately interwoven. And yet in a way that we can understand, written to us in human language, we don't have to ascend into heaven to bring Christ down and and find eternal life on our own and work it out, but you have given it to us as a free gift. Please bless us this afternoon as we engage in our many activities. Bless us as we meditate upon these things and guide our thoughts and meditations to be pleasing to you, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. In Jesus' name, amen.